Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a very special, very late <laughs> edition of the Napoleon Bonaparte podcast. My name is Cameron Riley. I'm recording this on the 6th of June, 2012. And as our last episode was February 11th, 2011, I guess there's been a bit of a gap between drinks. So I hope you're all well. Um, for those of you that are old-time listeners, uh, thanks for coming back and having a listen to this episode. For people that um, are just listening to it all for the first time, I guess it's uh, only probably been yesterday since you listened to the last episode. Anyway, the reason for this special edition, and it's um, only myself hosting today, no David, is because uh, at the moment in Australia, from June till October 2012, there's a very special Napoleonic event happening at the National Gallery of Victoria in Melbourne. And that's called Napoleon, Revolution to Empire. It's a tremendous exhibition that my wife Chrissy and I had the opportunity to attend on uh, Saturday, the opening day. And um, I had the opportunity today to record an interview with a lovely lady by the name of Sophie Matheson, who's the curator of the exhibition at the National Gallery of Victoria. And uh, she talks a lot about how the exhibition came to be, about some of the pieces in the exhibition, about um, what they hope people who attend the exhibition will learn about the revolution and about Napoleon and the empire as a result of attending. And of course, those of you that have been on this journey of Napoleon with us over the last four or five years will understand that bringing information about Napoleon to the world at large is, is our mission, has been our mission, and I know certainly with David uh, now in the role of president of the International Napoleonic Society and continuing to run events and write books about Napoleon, it's not only a passion for David, but it's his uh, life, it's his career at the moment, a very big part of his life, it always has been. So um, it's very exciting when you see exhibitions like this happen outside of France, obviously they happen all over the world, but for Australia, this is uh, the biggest Napoleonic event I can ever remember, and um, I think it's going to have a huge impact on bringing awareness about Napoleon to people in Melbourne and hopefully the rest of Australia. And those of you that are listening to this somewhere between June and October 2012, if you have an opportunity to come to Australia to see the exhibition... It's a, it's a great reason to make that trip to Australia that you've always been saying you were going to do one day. They have some tremendous pieces on display, which uh, I'll talk about with uh, Sophie in the interview. But um, beyond that, it's just a, a tremendous educational exhibition, I think. It starts back at the fall of Louis XVI, takes you through the revolution and into the consulate and the empire uh, right through to... St. Helena. So without further ado, let me cut to this interview with Sophie and um, I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening.
Sophie Cameron Riley from the Napoleon Bonaparte podcast. How are you? Oh, hello. How are you? Nice to speak to you. You too. Are you um, ready for a little chat? Yes, sure. Excellent. Thank you so much. I was just uh, knee-deep in um, writing a didactic about modernism and tribal form, so it's a little bit of a a (laughs) shift. A bit of a skip. (laughs) It is indeed. sideways jump. Well, look, um, thanks very much for, for making the time to speak to us today, Sophie. Yeah, sure. I um, had the opportunity to come down from Brisbane to the exhibition on Saturday, and I have to say I was hugely impressed. I, I mean, I don't want to say any, I mean, suggest anything bad about the NGV, but I mean, I was just not expecting um, outside of, let's say, France, uh, such a wonderful uh, exhibition devoted to Napoleon. <laughs> Yes, yes, it's uh, it's quite a feat, um, but uh, there are very strong sort of francophile elements in the curatorial community here, and um, very strong links with with curators in France, and um, and the collaboration with the Fondation Napoleon gave us um, the finest material available in the world to work with. Um, it's really fantastic to work with one single big collection um, that doesn't, because it's not a museum collection, it doesn't have um, the same demands on it um, as um, other as museum collections. And they gave us an enormous um, body of works um, to um, to absorb into a show and make you know, make into the kernel of the show. Yeah. So we had this marvellous critical mass of objects from which we could just then add strategic loans from elsewhere. Yep. So well, to count, so the most, so more, than, well over half of it comes from one collection. I was going to ask, so that and that was the Foundation Napoleon uh, collection. Mm, yes. Excellent. Well, listen, I, I want to talk to you a bit more about the exhibition, but if you don't mind, I'd like to go back a step first. Uh, you're the first curator I've ever got to, to chat with, and I, I was just realising I don't really understand much about what a curator does or how you become a curator. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do and, and a little bit about your background? Well, um, it's um, no one, I think, has an exactly identical trajectory into the curating world. Um, and um, these days there are courses that supposedly uh, qualify you to become a curator in the universities. They've come out of fine art and art history um, degree courses. But the, in fact, the, um, the old-fashioned way of doing it was to, um, to work your way up through a museum, um, working in other departments and finally finding your niche at the same time as developing a... Uh, sort of a scholarly and in-depth specialised interest in an area um, of the of a collection. Mm-hmm. Now, um, uh, also, if you are if if you've done a lot of scholarly research in one area uh, in academia, you, you might move into the museum world in that in that area. But um, uh, I got into it by um, knowing very early that that was all I wanted to do, and um, I did art history at university, and then I just volunteered in every capacity. That's uh, working in an Indigenous art, an Aboriginal um, art department here at the Gat Gallery. I worked in an education department in Boston Museum of Fine Arts, in um, a registration department at the Royal Academy of Fine Arts. I worked in art bookshops. I taught at universities. Just whatever, 
I worked for an, um, the art newspaper. It was just whatever kept me connected with art. Yeah. And um, all of that experience ends up sort of building up into something quite unique that you can then offer a museum. Wow. But there's a lot of poverty along the way, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it's a, it's a, I mean, it's a courageous career choice, uh, career choice and, and a noble one too, I think. I, can't, I don't think I can really recommend it to anybody <laughs> simply because um, uh, there are so few um, jobs in the area and it's not well remunerated. Um, and it, most people, if you look at it logically, would see it as a very poor return on, a, on many years of study. <laughs> Well, my wife's a violin teacher, and I think she would say similar things about uh, music yeah. as a career choice. Yes, absolutely. But as I always tell her, it's a noble profession and, and greatly respected. And we thank you. Uh, on behalf of the population of Australia, <laughs> I, I thank you. Well, it is amazing that we do get paid to do what we love. It is. I um, mean, it's, it's a privileged situation, isn't it? It is, absolutely. Are you from Melbourne originally? I am. Oh, I was born in England, but I'm a, a, to Australian parents, and I grew up in Melbourne. Grew up in um, but I've spent a lot of years abroad, one way or another. By the sounds of it. <laughs> so, tell me about your relationship with Napoleon before this exhibition. How much did you know about Napoleon before you got involved? Um, well, I um, I did study um, the 18th century um, in my masters in Sussex University, and I um, did a thesis on um, French revolutionary art. Um, and then I um, went up to Leeds University to do a PhD and my supervisor was a Napoleonic specialist and my area continued to be revolution and empire. So um, so I have had um, an unusual amount of immersion in, um, in 18th and early 19th century French history. Um, I've taught a lot of it um, in, um, in various universities, um, but that's a pretty um, unusual sort of pedigree um, I think for the average person, they would know Napoleon as a um, as a mythic figure from um, films, great museum paintings, and um, um, and some of his fam famous quips, you know, not tonight, Josephine, etc. <laughs> um, so he's really he's really um, become in, um, he's just embedded in popular culture in the in the collective unconscious. But then, you know, he was from very early on, wasn't he? And uh, and people in madhouses, even in the early 19th century, were said to um, to imitate Napoleon in the same way that some insane people have imitated Christ. <laughs> so he has, he has one of those rare people with these universal um, appeal factors. Um, I've, I've always got the impression that people that grow up in Commonwealth countries have somewhat of a distorted view of Napoleon. I know I certainly did until I started getting interested in the, that period of history when I was in my early 20s. Uh, and, what, and one of the things that gave me so much joy about the exhibition on at the NGV is that I hope that the people that attend come away from it with a much more balanced view of who he was. I mean, he has been portrayed, I think, uh, in Commonwealth countries as an earlier version of Hitler, as a as a warmonger, mm. as somebody who was, you know, the the culprit uh, for lots and lots of death and destruction 
you know, obviously the myself and my co-host David uh, on this show, David's the president of the International Napoleonic Society. Oh, really? We, we obviously have a very different view of uh, Napoleon. But um, I was interested, so you, you did that period of history, but you did it in England. What, um, what perspective did you get from Napoleon? Did you feel, do you feel now that you got a balanced perspective of Napoleon in terms of his achievements and the, the root causes of a lot of the troubles in Europe during that period, or was it slanted one way or the other? Well, I, mean, I think it's funny that, um, that really if you want to be a Napoleon file, um, there are few places as good for being one as, as Britain, um, when you find that you know, Napoleon's uh, chief adversary, Wellington, was also one of his greatest admirers and has a huge Napoleonic collection at his house in Stratfield Say and also at Apsley House. Um, everywhere in England, from, um, uh, collections in the uh, early 19th century uh, reflect the enormous impact of Napoleon and also on the consciousness of um, the English people in the 19th century. And yes, he was portrayed as a, as a sort of a bogeyman, um, but there was also enormous curiosity and interest. And even in 1802, with the, with the Peace of Amiens, um, you may recall that people flocked in their tens of thousands from England to Paris just to see what a Napoleonic France looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they, they um, and that was in, only in a brief break of hostilities. A lot of people were quickly. Um, captured and imprisoned when the peace process failed. Um, but um, just to think that they were so enthusiastic that they sort of jumped on the first boats as soon as they could to get across. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think the traffic was going in the opposite direction. <laughs> <laughs> Towards the nation of shopkeepers. Yeah, and, and, and your interest in French fashion and things were continue. It was very lively, although it was thwarted by all sorts of trade embargoes. Mm. Okay, so tell us then a little bit about the um, genesis of the exhibition and, and how it ended up in Melbourne. Obviously, there's a connection with Fondation Napoleon. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how long it's taken to pull together and some of the steps along the way? Well, the conversations often um, occur years out um, and don't necessarily come to anything. It's a matter, in some cases, of stars aligning. For example, the the collection being available to travel and us having the space um, and the um, the slot free in our calendar to make it happen. Um, the, um, the I suppose contracts only get signed in um, the last sort of with 24 months out of the period, the exhibition period. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a relatively lead, short lead time. Um, and in that uh, last, in that two years, um, all sorts of things are negotiated. Um, not only the overall sort of story you might want to tell, but um, the possible checklist and what's available and what would best tell your story. Um, and that's a very subtle process, and it can be very slow. Uh, and for example, the, um, the Australian element of the story um, became bigger and more important as people sort of thought about it over that period, and um, it got sort of um, elaborated on until it, start, it tells a very powerful story now. Right through the show, we start and end really with Australia as a, as a, as a strong theme. Um, 
And that was um, that was partly because there was so much interest in France about that side of the story, which they didn't know because they are working on Napoleon shows all the time. And you know, it's um, it's fascinating when you can make when you can make the um, whole enterprise interesting for your um, collaborators. Um, so um, so that was all um, sort of a matter of, sort of many conversations before things sort of start to take clear form. Um, once you have a catalogue checklist, you really do have the recipe of ingredients, and um, and you can then farm farm those ingredients out to the various people to write blocks of text, um, thematic essays, chapter introductions, etc. You, you, your whole chat, your whole catalogue starts to take form, and in the process, you get a very clear idea of why every object counts. And then you can sort of start to write about those individual objects. And then on top of all that, that's the curatorial side. You've got teams working on things like the education program, how you would sell that that uh, the story of Napoleon to different age groups, different audiences, how you make it interactive for some, and um, uh, you, you know um, how you might engage, say, French language classes in such a show, or. You have to think about all your mini audiences. Um, multimedia team is doing something similar, creating a virtually parallel exhibition and project on the web. You've got all your um, your marketing people who need to make this exhibition financially viable because of they are, of course, enormously expensive things to stage. We have to recoup our, our, our layout and then some. So um, everyone has a very, very... Um, uh, deep vested interest in the success of the show and its success depends on how it can go out and engage people and stay in people's minds. The show has to bring people back. Um, uh, it has to sort of really galvanise the whole, the whole um, you know, Victorian population. Oh, that's what we aspire to. <laughs> well, it's, it, it certainly galvanised me when I was there and, and some of the things, apart from the work in the exhibition, Itself, some of the things that really put a smile on my face, even just approaching the museum down St Kilda Road, was the the marketing, the the banners hanging out the front, the Napoleon mm. site inside the foyer, and then once inside the exhibition, the the tiny details that people may not even notice uh, on first glance, the the thematic wallpaper, the banners mm. hanging down corridors with the, the royal emblems on them. Mm. I mean, a tremendous amount of thought has obviously gone into it. Yes, and um, um, and that sort of subliminal preparation that all those, um, all, all those things create in the visitor, um, you know, with the, with the, the barnting and the, and the banners and et cetera, um, that, those are sorts of strategies that are actually throughout Napoleonic art in itself. So uh, we have employed a lot of the motifs of Napoleon to, as a form of propaganda to get people to come to the show. But in fact, once you step inside the show, you see that he has got fleets and armies of artists uh, and uh, artisans are working in a similar matter, manner to, um, to uh, uh, raise the prestige and glory of his um, of his empire, so um, uh, you know we've got we're really taking a leaf out of his book in the way that we have packaged the show to the public. 
Uh, well, it was it was very impressive nonetheless. Um, you, you mentioned before about it, it costing a lot of money to put something like this together. How does it get funded? Is it um, a combination of state government and uh, patrons? Um, it is exactly that, yes. Um, the state government gives us um, uh, our basic... Um, loan fees covers our indemnification, etc. At the same time, we have to um, be able to recoup the government's expenditure through um, ticket sales and merchandise sales, etc. Um, so we aim to um, do better than break even, um, and where we do break even. So where we do um, succeed uh, and create a surplus um, that um, puts us in a position of greater strength for the next exhibition mm-hmm. that we embark on. Um, so um, it's a it's, it's a, a marvellous um, process with lots of potential, but it always has a lot of risk involved. And you know, putting on an ambitious show is always a gamble. Um, you know, because you can't you. you you, uh, you could never, you could never guarantee that um, that uh, you will be repaid in monetary terms. Mm. And and obviously, I mean, this is something that probably isn't. I mean, if you bring out a great artist, you bring out a Da Vinci or uh, some other Renaissance artist collection. You know, it's it's something that people are likely to associate with going to the gallery. But you know, people might think, well, Napoleon, really? How does that tie in with a, a trip to a, an art gallery? I wanted to talk about the merchandise actually because um, obviously being involved in Napoleonic circles for 20 years you tend to uh, get a sense for what's out there in terms of Napoleonic merchandise and memorabilia but I saw uh, objects uh, in the shop, in the gallery shop on the way out that I've never seen before and I was wondering if you have these custom made for the exhibition or if they've been travelling with the exhibition and they've just escaped my attention before. What sort of objects do you mean? Oh, there were pillows and candles and um, all sorts of things with Napoleonic themes on them, outside of the, the books, etc. But Yeah. Um, wine, uh, water glasses and wine glasses with the, the Empire um, decorations on them, um, all sorts of things. Now, I don't know the exact um, origin of all of the merchandise in the shops, but our normal pro- procedure would be uh, to spend quite a few months, we've got a very specialised team uh, in um, in the merchandising area who, um, who put a lot of research into the product, talk to the curators a lot about the content of the show and what the product would be reflecting about the show. So we try to get a good fit. And they they do a lot of very intrepid research and travel um, to get things, uh, objects that will sell and that are appropriately themed um, for the show. Um, and then, um, in certain cases, we even commission um, lines of products um, uh, to be made locally, generally, um, uh, also for the show. And they try to get a, um, a good range of, um, of cost, um, of objects of um, different costs and also um, to different audiences, so young, old, um, etc. I haven't had time actually to look at the merchandise for this show, but um, generally it's pretty good for the shop. 
Well, I thought they did a fabulous job. And again, oh, I'll, in that case, when I stop talking to you, I'll I'll, I'll pop out and uh, have a look because I'm very partial to. As you know, as Napoleon, as Napoleon files, it's um, you know a wonderful thought that uh, people will come to the exhibition, leave exit via the gift shop, uh, pick up a few Napoleon themed uh, items, and take them back to their house, where it will remind them of the the story of Napoleon mm. and his achievements. Um, you mentioned putting together education packages before. I mean, I mean, obviously there will be groups of students school trips coming through i imagine mm. um does the ngv tend to work closely with schools around exhibitions like this to introduce um something in the into the curriculum uh we certainly do uh, very often in fact we make um our show um tie in with existing curricula for schools um and um and I think our team does an, a fantastic job. We've got a large team of qualified um, sort of ed, edu, educationalists, um, or educators in the gallery, um, and they um, they work very closely with the um, with the school curricula um, and all the assessment exercises and tailor um, uh, a wide range of material for that. So they will write, generate their own texts for students. Um, and there's some wonderful examples of that that on our website, um, uh, in where it's um, not only fantastic for the students, but fantastic for teaching the teachers at the same time about the subject and how to um, create a dialogue about about Napoleon, how to generate curiosity, uh, some very creative questions that are designed to get maximum engagement, imaginative engagement from students. Um, and um, I think some of the best educational material I've ever seen has been generated in this show. Oh, fabulous. What, what, can you tell us uh, one or two of those pieces? Well, for example, there, we have, uh, there are four um, works in focus um, on the, in the education part of the website. Uh, one of them um, is a focus on a painting in our collection, um, about um, a diplomat, uh, François Mio, um, in Tuscany, in Florence, in 1795 and six, and he um, and the whoever has written, a member of the education department has written the most beautiful piece just about that picture, and about why it works so well, um, emotionally and um, sort of compositionally, etc., and. Its importance in terms of social history. Now that was that was an object lesson in good writing, uh, and out of that she has teased some wonderfully suggestive ideas, um, and um, just really created. A, it's a bit like distance learning. She's created a whole um, imaginative excitement about this picture, and yet she's not even in the room. So there's an, there's somebody who's very excited writing about one object in the exhibition. And somehow bringing all the excitement of the whole exhibition into into your world through one object. Wonderful. And speaking of objects, you've obviously got some amazing pieces in the exhibition. Um, you know, I guess a couple that will stand out for most people. You have uh, the the copy of David's Napoleon crossing the Alps from I think it's the one from Versailles. Is that right? That's right. I have to ask you about the frame on that painting. I found the frame most unusual. 
is there any backstory on the frame? It just didn't, uh, you know, you expect oh, paintings simple. from that era to be It's very built. simple. Yes. Versailles has a huge collection of um, these um, large paintings um, which were sort of kept at Versailles as sort of uh, uh, great sort of military and historical records um, and um, they also kept miniature versions of those same pictures in a different part. But they were um, on um, walls with just battened, battened attached through with battens to the wall. So they, they in very, very often didn't have their own frames. And when they're being sent out to um, exhibitions like ours, which is very rare, given their size and fragility, they're put into temporary travelling frames. So they were just, they're just quite inexpensive travelling frames. And our big pictures from Versailles are in them. Those pictures uh, arrived in Australia in freighters because they're so big. Can you um, give, give people a, an indication of how big that painting is? Ooh, um, well, um, I would say it's over, over two metres high and probably about a bit over two metres wide. Um, I, um, just if you give me a moment, I could probably tell you exactly. I think it's on your website. I'm just going to look it up as well. Um, I mean, it's really, really massive. 267.5 by 223 centimetres. So you were right. Yes. Two and a half metres by over two metres, 2.2 metres. Massive, massive, imposing artwork. And, And I'd have to say not only probably the most famous painting of Napoleon, but a very, very famous painting in its own right. Yes, yes, absolutely, um, and it um, is quite mythic. It really f- shows David's ability to um, capture um, Na- Napoleon, a man he knew personally, um, as a as a as a mythic figure. And it's a bit hard to do that. I mean, bit, can you imagine trying to sort of conceive your your mum or your best friend in mythic terms. It means, in a way, stepping outside of your own moment and viewing Napoleon as history would view him. Um, And that's um, no mean feat. And so he has, um, of course, elevated him to a sort of semi-godlike figure um, uh, who's almost airborne um, on the tilting backwards on a rearing horse over what looks like a precipice um, in um, inclement weather. It's, it's a sublime picture in the sense that um, all the elements are against, uh, are against him and the horse. The horse is rearing, there's stormy weather, impending clouds, um, uh, and uh, Napoleon's cloak and the horse's Maine are completely sort of whipped up by the wind. So it's um, a way of suggesting Napoleon is sort of god of the elements, god of energy, um, a sort of um, an all-powerful figure, fearless. And amidst all this um, turbulence, he's absolutely um, firmly seated and composed on that horse, leading the way forward. Um, So this is a superhuman image of control and power and energy. Um, and as we all know, it's uh, largely fictive as well. <laughs> so that's where the artist comes in uh, to play. Uh, David has um, presented this wonderful romantic sublime picture, but um, the reality was uh, very different. Um, 
in the days before photography, an artist's version of how something um, occurred was very often taken as the last word. But we do for, know for a fact that, um, that Napoleon was uh, riding on a broad-backed steady mule and um, that the train wouldn't permit horses to travel over the Alps. Um, they'd have broken their legs. Um, the horses were were led quietly over while um, the mules, in fact, did the, 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 the great work. Um, yeah, so... <laughs> And of course, as as many people may not realise, when this painting was uh, created in 1803, this is even before Napoleon was emperor. He was still um, only first consul, and it was only a couple of years into that period of his career as well. So it, it really did almost set the stage in some ways for the rest of Napoleon's career. Well, yes, and the, well, the reality is that the first consul had every bit as much power as Napoleon himself as, as emperor. Um, it was by this point um, uh, a dictatorship, um, France, and um, and I can see why uh, he was being depicted as, as omnipotent. But then you look back to what he had conquered, and he had conquered some of the most uh, impossible territory in impossible time frames uh, against impossible odds. Um, so um, it's no surprise that he's, um, he's already the hero of the French before he's even emperor. And, and what level of involvement did he have, do you think, in creating that style of propaganda of promoting his uh, successes to the French people? Uh, are you talking about Jacques-Louis David? No, Napoleon. Oh, Napoleon himself. Yes. Oh, he had a lot. Um, he um, he was the um, ultimate arbiter of all the big uh, paintings that were made. Uh, he um, he and David he rec he recognised talent and used it, even if um, his artists um, and men of talent didn't always see eye to eye with him. And um, so there was um, no doubt about it. Uh, uh, times of um, contestation and conflict. With his um, with his main um, painters um, and Jacques Louis David uh, was many times forced to amend a painting to make it uh, accord with uh, Napoleon's self image. Uh, that said, Napoleon was an impatient man and very busy, and he didn't have much time to engage with artists. Um, and there's a famous story about him refusing to settle for his picture to be taken by, um, by a painting made by Gros, and jo Josephine could only get him to settle for the portrait by forcing him to sit on her knee, which he did, which he did mildly, and it was the <laughs> first, first opportunity a painter had to actually paint, um, paint a calm and uh, compliant Napoleon. Get him to stop for a second. <laughs> yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, the. Well, uh, sorry, just before we move off of the uh, David, was that part of the Fondation collection, or did you have to extract that from Versailles separately? We uh, we were very generously loaned it by Versailles, but then um, you know we were able to say say to Versailles in the first place that we've secured this marvelous, um, huge Fondation Napoleon collection, and we were able to. Um, to make compelling arguments for why this would uh, transform and enhance our show. 
Um, so you have to always argue for these things. They're not just handed over to you, even if you have the money and the logistical capacity to borrow. You have to make a sound case. Um, and um, we um, we borrowed as much as the as Versailles was actually able to give us. So um, we 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 did very well. Um, and we also um, had marvelous loans from the um, Invalide and the Musée Carnavalet, Musée de la Révolution Française in Vizil, all over France. We 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 received marvelous cooperation and generosity. Well, it's it's truly a tremendous piece, and I wanted to um, ask you about the bicorn as well. You have one of Napoleon's hats mm. from Saint Helena. Mm. Um, mm. What was the, the the background behind getting that in the exhibition? From from what I recall, there's only four, maybe five left in existence. I oh. think there's one currently in Toronto that um, the the previous president of the INS donated there as part of his will when he passed away mm. a couple of years ago. But it's very rare. I guess I, I want people to just understand that being able to see one of the famous hats, you know, probably one of the most famous uh, pieces of personal propaganda, you know, all you mm. need to do is show a picture of That's a bicorn right. turned sideways and, and people automatically associate it with Napoleon. To actually have one in the exhibition is mm. uh, amazing. Well, I mean, from the, um, uh, from the start of the consulate to, until the empire, um, it was estimated that about 160 to 70, 170 hats were made for him. Um, and they were in different sizes, so uh, he had quilted ones um, for colder weather. But about, I think about 20 are authenticated today, um, and um, of, and some of those are in private collections. Oh, really? So wow. That's there's a lot only a handful, wow. the only handful of actually available ones um, uh, that we could borrow, um, and the Musée de l'Armée loaned us that. There's, um, but they're all made by the same milliner, um, by a, a fellow called Poupard. Uh, in the galleries of the Palais Royal. And do you have a favourite piece in the exhibition, Sophie? Um, I do. Um, it's right up the front. It's the um, the marvellous revolutionary poster um, of um, uh, Egalité, Fraternité, Unité. Um, it's, um, it's so fresh and it's just a piece of... Um, thickish white paper with um, the red, blue and white fluttering all over it um, and it's got this great graphic purity, it's fresh, um, it's beautiful to look at and yet it's very early propaganda uh, from uh, the, the early days of the revolution um, and this is you know, a great tribute to um, artists because they were generating this propaganda with nothing much to work on. It was all sort of, they were inventing afresh. Um, and this is a quintessential um, image of the revolution. I'm amazed it survived all this time. It looks as fresh as when it was first made. Um, and um, I'm just amazed by how, um, what a beautiful, textured, um, delicate object it is when you see it. It is. It's in the a, flesh. It is. Do I, you remember I was, it? I do, absolutely. I was absolutely shocked that you had something, uh, you know, that delicate that, that had survived. It's um, astounding. And and so delicate when you think it's performing such an important role, which is um, sort of uh, changing people's mindset virtually overnight. And it's calling for, it's calling for unity um, 
freedom and uh, brotherhood or death. Or death, immortal. Or death. Yeah. And it's just got the flag, the bonnet rouge, the it's got all the 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 iconic elements of the French Revolution uh, in this simple, uncluttered poster. What do you hope that people take away from the exhibition? Oh, um, a sense of the colossal sort of um, 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 uh, richness, cultural richness of objects and images, etc., that go in that go towards transforming people's ideas about who they are. Uh, the French government, revolutionary government, and then Napoleon. Um, generated uh, objects for everyday life uh, and for the court at every level to reflect back to people where they were in history and how they had a very special destiny. And I think that it was so successful that the French have continued on to this day with a sense of that special destiny and identity. Hmm. Has the reception been so far? I mean, I know the exhibition only opened uh, a few days ago, but have you had much feedback? Oh, I think it's been fantastic feedback, and I feel it will just grow and grow. It's a bit like Salvador Dali, when people realise what a, a rich and interesting and exciting show it is. Um, it, people just, it just gets busier and busier. And, um, well, with Dali, in the end, we um, had to open it um, overnight um, and have extra openings and uh, we've certainly prepared ourselves to, to do that again this time. Well, I hope so as well. I hope it's uh, the most successful show you've had to date. It certainly will be if I have anything to do with it. I'm... Oh, yes. Oh, that's great that, that, that there are Napoleon files in Australia. <laughs> it is, and we, we need to build more. And, um, and, you know, I totally recommend to all of our international listeners as well. I know we have listeners to this show from all over the globe that are fans of the emperor uh if you you know want a good excuse to come to australia on a vacation uh, this is it mm. you'll, you'll never have a better one thank you so much uh, congratulations sophie on the exhibition i hope it uh, continues to do very well for you and, and thanks so much for taking time to talk to us today it's oh, a real privilege thank you it was a great pleasure Well, there you go, folks. I hope you enjoyed that. I certainly enjoyed chatting with Sophie. And um, I guess that's the show for today. Uh, I get emails from people every day asking, when will there be another episode? Um, honestly, I don't know. David and I do talk regularly. Uh, we, we talk about doing new episodes and uh, kicking the show off again. But uh, we'll just have to wait and see, I guess. So fingers crossed we might... Um, have a reason to get together and talk about something. If you have ideas about n new topics that we can discuss, new episodes or guests that we could have on, feel free to shoot me an email, cameronriley at gmail.com. Otherwise, folks, thanks for listening. Keep in touch via Facebook and Twitter and the comment section of the blog, and um, we'll talk soon. Cheers. <laughs>